Welcome to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef, your host, and if you've arrived here, there must be a reason. I'm guessing you're curious to learn more about improving your wellbeing alongside ADHD, or maybe looking for some advice or guidance to feel healthier and calmer. So, why start this podcast? I'm a wellbeing and lifestyle coach, EFT practitioner, mum to four kids, and I discovered my own ADHD alongside one of my daughters at the age of 40. And now, after supporting many other women just like me, and probably you, I feel there's a need for more emphasis on wellbeing and lifestyle help for women with ADHD. And through the podcast, I want to offer you new insights and perspectives to enable you to live your most fulfilled, calm and balanced life. So wherever you are on your ADHD journey, my aim is to support you in finding the awareness and the most aligned tools to enhance your well-being so you can make the most intentional mindset and lifestyle choices moving forwards. Ready to get started? Here's the episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef, your host, and today I'm here with a new episode. Now, it is still a guest episode, but we are doing something slightly different today, and I'm bringing you a compilation of some of my best experts on a specific subject, and that specific subject is all about emotional regulation. Now, I hear from so many of you and also from a personal experience that emotional regulation can be really one of the hardest parts of ADHD to deal with. It can be really challenging day to day. And I wanted to bring you this compilation episode because over the year almost of having the podcast, it's been talked and touched on in many different episodes. And the reason why emotional regulation for me feels so pertinent at the moment is that I, um, first of all, I hear that this is really one of the main areas where a lot of people are reaching out for help. And that is why I have created a private podcast series called Karma Days. So you can call it a private podcast or maybe it's an audio workshop series type thing. But I've created it as an audio because, as you probably know, I love podcasting and I love being in people's ears. And I know from someone who also loves podcasts and who does so much listening to podcasts, I'm always walking the dog and I'm in the car and the podcasts are going in and I really learn very well in this way. So I've created Karma Days because we are honing in on feeling karma for every day tapping into those everyday tweaks, those mindset shifts, being able to bring in and welcome in new opportunities to feel calmer, feel more in control of our emotions. So if this is of interest to you, Karma Days is now available. It is live on my website. It is adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk or the link is in my show notes. Head there. I've made it as affordable as possible. It's about three hours all broken up into short snappy episodes ranging from using tapping, essential oils, movement, gut health, mindset shifts, there's a bit of spirituality in there, taking all my favorite tools and everyday techniques, I would say, all the things that I lean into that really help me feel calmer, less overwhelmed, less flooded by emotions, and really being able to see my emotional regulation as something that I can be in control of. And we also talk about cycles and understanding ourselves from a female perspective as well, from someone, from a person that has menstrual cycles, hormonal cycles, really being able to understand where that comes into as well with our ADHD. So I wanted to direct you first to Karma Days. And now I want to be able to bring to you this week's episode where we have got experts coming in and talking all about compassionate communication with Lydia Zalowski. We've got Miriam Saunders, who is talking about the power of the morning routine and reacting to our kids and actually modeling to our children how to emotionally regulate. We've got Tamara Razier, who talks about acceptance and recognition of emotional dysregulation. Melissa Orlov, and we're talking about being aware of those intense emotional moments and sending ourselves compassion to help our relationships. We also have Marcy Cardwell, and we're talking about being derailed by our emotions and how to ease that overwhelm and reactivity and really buffer to shed the overstimulation. And then we have Grace Timothy, who talks about editing her life to help with the demands, um, the continual daily demands and having the awareness to help push forwards with ADHD. So this episode is all about 
building our resilience and minimizing our reactivity, but also being aware and understanding and accepting where we are right now. And that's the most important thing is really understanding where we are right now without worrying about where we're going to be in the future or antagonizing over the past. So I really hope this compilation episode helps you understand different ways to hone in on the areas of your life that may need that extra bit of attention. And don't forget, Karma Days is now live. Even if you're just interested to have a little nosy, it's all there on my website, adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk. Let's listen to Lydia Zalowski. And something that fascinates me personally is sort of the nonviolent communication and mindful communication. And you talk about this in the book. And I think it's so important that we can improve our relationships. We can improve our um, careers by recognizing that mindful communication is accessible to us all by by using something like, you know, stop. And the word nonviolent communication, it sounds a bit kind of obscure, but if you're able to just kind of condense it into an explanation so people can understand how they can bring in more mindfulness into their day-to-day relationships, that would be really helpful. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned something um, just a moment ago about self-regulation. So I just want to emphasize that ADHD is very much a self-regulation difficulty, both on the level of regulating attention, regulating emotions, and then even regulating your actions. And so it really helps to bring um, some skills into that self-regulation skills. And you could think of mindfulness as self-regulation skill because that the awareness gives you those, um, you know, those moments of deciding, you know, how can I meet myself a little differently? I can redirect my attention. I can help my emotions to calm down a little bit, or at least I start acknowledging that I'm really, you know, revved up. And then I can do something to bring down this sense of reactivity or stress that's present. And when you in the reactive place, you also communicate in ways that are maybe ways you don't want to afterwards. You know, you can you can say things that you regret. You can say it in an unskillful way. You can, you know, have uh, maybe react with anger. It's easy to kind of let the emotions get out of hand and maybe the conversation get out of hand. So mindfulness kind of has two pieces to it. One of them is just really focusing on where am I emotionally before I even start the conversation? Like, what are my assumptions or thoughts right now in this moment? Uh, because if you if you coming to a conversation with an agenda, and sometimes it's like an angry agenda, or you know it may be I have to um, correct this person, or it may be, or I have to make my point. Sometimes we forget to just create a space of listening and being open to understanding what is it that I'm really feeling underneath maybe the anger, and what is it that is going on for the other person. So. The nonviolent communication really came out of that understanding that oftentimes when there's a lot of emotion or conflict, people get derailed in their communication. And actually how they communicate make things worse. Oftentimes when there's a lot of emotion or conflict, there may be blaming, there may be kind of this reactive responding. And so the term of nonviolent communication came from that. And this is work by Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, who is a psychologist writing very much about the topic. And it's often referred to also as compassionate communication. Mm. So I actually prefer that term. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Uh, Compassionate or mindful communication. And I like it because there's a lot to it, but I, I like to simplify it by saying there's these few basic steps of how to start a conversation on something that is potentially difficult to talk about with Mm. someone something that maybe you bicker about or have conflict about. And it's not a natural way to start conversing. So sometimes it helps to maybe write it out first for yourself mm-hmm. um, before you do. So the first step of that is to try to state the problem or, or, or the situation in a non-judgmental way. Just stating the facts of what is it that you're trying to talk about or address maybe give an example to contrast the two so that will bring it to life. But the first step is to try to be non-judgmental and more factual than kind of coloring things with assumptions already. 
or judgments. Then the second step is you talk about your feelings. Okay. So the I statements, which are Mm -hmm. not easy because often what we do is you do this, you do that, you don't do this. So it's this you statement that we start, you know, bringing into a conflict, but it's really focusing on I statements about what are your thought, what are your feelings in this moment? Then you connect to kind of more values or explanation. Why is this important for you? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you make a request of the other person. So it's not easy because you have to pull yourself back from maybe being angry and, you know, talking about the other person and you have to be vulnerable because you have to talk about your feelings. And it's also a more gentle approach because you're making a request as opposed to, you know, saying you should do this, uh, which is more of a, like a directive, right? So what it may be that if you're talking to a partner or maybe a child, you would say, when you, so, so the example I use in the book, I think is parents, is a mom talking to a, a teenager that is very messy. So mm-hmm. there's things everywhere, you know, socks everywhere, clothes everywhere. And you could easily imagine the parent saying, it's so messy. This is, this is a pigsty. Why don't you pick this up? You know, I told you many times to do this. I mean, we could all see ourselves doing this very easily. So first of all, compassion is important. We all overreact. We all can do this. And it's already a victory if you kind of catch yourself doing it. And maybe instead of going on for a minute, you go for half a minute in this moment. So that that's already, I think, bringing some awareness to it. So it's not about, you know, sometimes people feel like mindfulness is about being zen and peaceful all the time. That's impossible for anyone, right? So it's it's also just knowing that human nature is to overreact, but we do have these opportunities to intervene when we're overreacting. And then it gets easier as you keep practicing it to, instead of overreacting, you notice the urge to maybe yell at your mm-hmm. teenager, and then you say, okay, look. How can I approach this a little differently? Um, so, all right, what's this nonviolent steps, right? <laughs> or compassionate way to approach this. So you may say to your teenager, when I see all your stuff in the living room and in your bedroom on the floor, right? So it's you're trying to say the facts, like, what is it? When your things are all over the place in our house, I feel anxious, right? I feel um, stressed. So you're talking about yourself. And then you say, you know, it's because clutter and mess really affects me. And it's really important for me to have uh, some sense of, of, of order in, in our home. And then you go to the request. Could you pay attention to this? And could you pick up your stuff right now to help me with this? So when you approach people like this, your chances of them responding in a way that's understanding and willing to respond in the way um, you're asking them to do are higher. It's not a guarantee. You're not controlling the situation by doing this, but what you're doing is you setting up the conversation in a way that the other person is less defensive. Yeah. Right. And instead of making them more reactive, you're also helping them be less reactive and more thoughtful and, and, and come at you know at you in a, in a little bit uh, different way. Another example is maybe a couple and husband always drives too fast, and so the uh, his wife always says, "You drive too fast. You know this is you're gonna get a ticket. You're gonna do this. So it's this reactive mode. But if you were to say, "Honey, it scares me that when you drive this fast." So again, it's a shift to more about how you're feeling, coming a little bit more from vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, can really change the energy between people. Mm, absolutely. It's that vulnerability and um, removing the blame, isn't it? Which, like you say, is is removing that volatility in the conversation and hopefully bringing in the, the connectiveness and also this heartfulness, which you talk about, because so much of what we're talking about with mindfulness is, is about self-compassion forgiveness acceptance loving kindness like all these words that just feel really good to hear and good to experience 
And so that can have such a big impact on our stress, our self-regulation, our attention, our focus, our sleep. And it can be such a big area of our, our life if we bring it in uh, in different capacities. And this non-judgment as well, which I think is huge because I think if we are learning to not judge ourselves and not criticize ourselves, then in, in turn stops us from doing that to other people, which I guess is is part of this sort of the mindful communication that we're talking about, because we're, re- we're removing that blame from them and showing them what it's like to show that vulnerability, but then allowing things to change in a sort of more forgiving way, would you say? And that can come to us as well. Yeah, I think it, it, in general, it's approaching the other person with more compassion, more forgiveness, just more, less anger and assumptions. This whole process is easier if we start with ourselves, if we start practicing with ourselves to create that non-judgmental space or compassionate space. And growing up with ADHD, whether you know it or not, whether you diagnose later in life or not, can mean that people are seeing you differently or they're judging you or there's certain expectations that you're not meeting, so you're judging yourself. So a lot of people grow up with that inner critic or that, uh, you know, this voice inside that tells you to shape up, to do more. You know, I know a lot of women compensate by perfectionism. So there is that, you know, I have to do it perfect in order not to be seen as a failure or not, you know, so there's this kind of maybe this compensation whether it's this critical voice or this the shoots, you should do this, you should do it that way, that that can be really uh, harsh in the end. You can be really harsh with yourself and then judge yourself if you're not meeting some sort of standard and feel really awful about yourself and feel like you're a failure. So, I mean, we do know that your self-concept can be affected by ADHD. You're, there may be more self-doubt um, when you uh, grow up with ADHD. So it's just so important to kind of wonder about that. How do I relate to myself? What is my relationship with myself? How do I respond to myself in the moments of suffering or difficulty? And that's what self-compassion is about, is how you meet yourself in the moment of difficulty. And now here's Miriam Saunders. I know that you use a lot of um, mindfulness, you teach mindfulness. How does that blend with your parenting behavior? Do you, do you work with mindfulness for the child or for the adult? For the adult. Yeah. I mean, it would be fantastic to also be able to bring that awareness to, to children. It's a little more difficult um, because if they had the ability to be that self-aware in the moment, then they might not have those impulsive behaviors, right? But it's all about that pause before acting. Uh, that we're working to expand with children, adults have slightly more self-awareness. And a lot of that self-awareness comes with paying attention to your body. So what, when, when I'm stressed, where do I typically feel it? You know, a lot of people feel it in their neck or their stomach or their head. Um, knowing yourself enough to understand like, oh, my stomach is tensing that's a first sign. What do I need to do right now before I act in a way that I might regret? And typically it's breathing deeply into wherever that place is because by slowing our breath, we're signaling to our nervous system that we're not in danger. Everything's okay. There's no reason to be stressed. We can calm down. And it allows our higher level thinking part of our brain to come back online and react in a more thoughtful way. Um, so if we're speaking to women with ADHD who have children with ADHD, um, then it, it's often incorporating a practice of, for example, when you wake up in the morning, um, taking a few minutes before you just launch right into grabbing your cup of coffee and waking the kids up and getting that whole chaos of the morning going um, to check in with yourself, center your body, breathe and um, set your intentions for how you want to be in the morning. I want to be more calm. I'd like to uh, react to my children with a sense of humor instead of 
frustration and think about what is coming in the next 15 minutes. You know what's coming. You wake your children up every day. Are they usually grouchy? You know, do you have to push them five times before they get out of bed? Are they going to refuse to eat? Are you going to have to ask them 10 times to get dressed? You know that's coming because it comes every morning. So how can you move through those 15 minutes with grace and calm and a modeling of how you want your child to be, right? So if you're annoyed and frustrated and, and screaming, well, you're setting the stage likely that your child might be as tense and irritated as you are in response. Um, That's really powerful. Sorry, I just wanted to say that it's that modeling, isn't it? Because if we're not, like you say, setting the stage, then we can't, you know, shout at them for reacting badly to us. And it's just this cycle, isn't it? That's that just breeds more and more chaos and anger and shouting in the house, which no one wants. Yes. Then at the end of the day, right, when you know the children are coming home from school, it's the same sort of giving yourself a moment to pause and reflect on the transition you're about to make. You're about to go from whatever you were doing with work or your alone time to having to now manage this herd of cats that's about to come into your home and probably not respond in the way that you're hopeful. I don't know if it's just women with ADHD or all people, but I, I feel like we're eternally optimistic that somehow we think today's gonna be different. Today, my children are gonna be angels and it's all going to work the way it works for Betty down the street, whose children are perfect. And invariably we get the same thing we got yesterday because we're reacting in the same way we reacted yesterday. And our children have ADHD and they, they can't really just suddenly be different. So it's a, again, a breathing and a, a setting the intention for, all right, I'm pretty sure I know how this afternoon is going to go. How do I want to move through this? What can I put in place so that it might go a little bit better? Yeah. What you said just earlier about um, noticing the feelings in your body, that's been for me like the one of the biggest game changers. I'm an EFT practitioner and that's always been something that I go to straight away is like the feeling in your body. And I know that I'm so finely tuned into those feelings in my body and my nervous system because I can feel it flare up straight away. And something little like the first thing you do when you wake up and you check your phone and, all, and you notice that you've got 15 WhatsApp messages and Instagram's going off and mail and all of that. I, my nervous system just goes whoosh, like switches onto like high drive, like on high alert. And that has a direct impact exactly on our morning you know, just for that motion of checking my phone before I do anything. So I've tried now, and it doesn't happen every morning, it really doesn't, but I try for it to happen that I don't check my phone. And I actually do a little bit of preventative tapping or breathing. So the first thing I do when I wake up is just do three or four minutes of breath work and tapping at the same time. So it's almost like it's balancing my nervous system before it gets out of whack. Yes. And, and I found that really really helpful and what's funny is that my I've got two teenagers and I've got two younger kids so my teenagers are those kids where thankfully my husband's an early bird and he gets my older kids up and he does the kind of up down up down getting them out of bed and then my little ones are already awake and they come into my bedroom and they see me doing my breath work and my tapping and they kind of just know now they just walk out the room. Now, mummy's doing a funny tapping. <laughs> mummy's doing a breathing. And they just kind of see it. And I, I'm not hiding it from them because, you know, at least one of them's got ADHD. And I'd be very surprised if the other one doesn't have something, you know, with that. So I want them to see how important it is to regulate your nervous system, especially as a woman with ADHD. I see that one of the biggest things that my clients come to me is sort of emotional regulation nervous system feeling calm feeling balanced wanting to feel like they are in control of their emotions and for me if they want to think that I'm a bit crazy but they'll remember I hope when they're teenagers oh I remember when mum used to do this thing maybe you know now I'm ready to hear it now they're not but maybe one day they will and something will just stick I think what we could model here is one day our kids are gonna be adults as well and parents and they're going to remember what we did in the morning and if we screamed or actually mum was calm 
maybe I can try and, you know, do that. Let's hear from Tamara Rosier. But maybe we could just go back to the prefrontal cortex butler, because I really like this analogy of how you explain what this is. And so I don't, you don't have to go into the whole sort of um, neuroscience, but if you could give us a little snapshot of what you mean by the butler and what we're missing, I guess, in the in our bit of our brain. Yeah, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, the first time I used this metaphor, I was talking to, I think uh, she was around nine years old. And I was trying to explain ADHD to her because she's a smart nine-year-old girl. And so um, I said to her, you know, I bet you see this um, mommy. Her, her mommy didn't have ADHD. And I said, you know, in your mommy's brain, she has this butler. So the child and I started to play like what we thought a butler might think. And by the way, let's be clear. Neither of us have a butler. We just have watched enough TV, maybe BBC kind of TV to tell us what we think a butler is. Yeah. But my little head, I think a butler is just kind of attending to me to say, excuse me, your AirPods are on the counter. Or don't worry, ma'am, I'm going to get your AirPods back. You'll just need to wait a moment. You know, it, it's this calming voice that is directing my attention and directing my emotions. And it's a very calm voice. And so with this child, we were pretending to, you know, what our, our the mommy's butler sounded like. And the child was absolutely hilarious. She's like, I said, so what do you think your mom's butler says? Don't worry. She's going to remember to put her bike away. You know, and, and so the butler says this. And as you guessed this and your listeners guessed, we don't have a butler. I say mine really left town and is not ever returning. And so we have the version of an angry neighbor. And if you would imagine, again, taken from TV, I watched too much TV as a child um, in the 70s and 80s. But if you could imagine this um, curmudgeon of a human and just standing on the property line, screaming over to you, shaking his shoe, saying, why I, and threatening to throw his shoe at you. He's doing obscene gestures, I'm sure. And all of this is to try to get you to behave. And so when we have ADHD, the angry neighbor is really kind of how our emotions work to try to get us to behave. Does the angry neighbor technique work? Of course not. Does every ADHD person I've ever known try to use it? Yes. And that's just because that's how our brain is set up. I think it's important what you're saying is that I, I speak to a lot of my clients about just diary management of of trying to stay off that red zone and being um, really conscious and intentional with the amount of meetings you book in, what you commit to, your boundaries. If you've got a buffer, you know, I'm a huge fan of like buffers between meetings. I've got time to eat, have a walk around, um, do some breath work. Oh, I love that. I love that because that's what we compromise. We compromise who we really want to be. Like, we don't want to be that crazy screaming mom yeah. in the parking lot, right? We don't want to be that person. And so it takes a lot of planning to be that person. You know, something else you said, though, that hit me, it's not just avoiding the people-pleasing, managing our rejection sensitivity, but it's also actually remembering that things take time. Mm -hmm. That's where, frankly, I'll forget to give myself bio breaks, right? I forget that I'm a human and I need to eat, use the restroom. I forget. And don't even get me started on travel time. You know, somehow I think I'm on Star Trek and I can just beam myself in a different place. Years and years I should be working on this. And yet my brain literally forgets that those things take time. Yeah, definitely. And that's why we have to, I think, keep checking back in with ourselves because we can either live in this perpetual state of frenzy and stress and that yeah. red that red quadrant where things right. do get done, but at the expense of our health. And like, 
you know, the stress that we live under in that quadrant has to be short term. It can't be long term because that's when I do see the knock on effect of, you know, chronic pain and inflammation and autoimmune problems and depression. And it really it's quite a serious thing that we think we're kind of, um, you know, with ADHD, if we just cram, everything will be fine. But you can't live like that. It's just not. You know, I, I just so love your approach. I, and I, I so appreciate how common sense you are because you're not saying, hey, we need to be pr- the most productive we can be because we have these beautiful minds that can create unattainable productivity. Um, but you're also, and this is where I really appreciate it, you're accepting ADHD and not saying, hey, I, I want to always be careful with my clients to say, this is not a gift. ADHD is a harder way to live in our modern world. And every day, uh, you know, when I do interviews, I work with people who aren't ADHD professionals like yourself, who are like, yes, but Tamara, doesn't ADHD have strengths? And I say only, we only have strengths when we're really managing the weaknesses. And that takes a lot of work and it's exhausting. And so imagine a superpower that you could use for 20 seconds a day and then had to take two days to restore that power. That's how exhausting it is. Yeah. So I love that you, you're approaching this like, yes, let's admit we have ADHD. Let's also say that it's harder to be us in a modern world. Yeah. And that's a hundred percent. That is the approach because I think that's the acceptance I've had to come to through lots of convoluted ways of, of not quite knowing until I got my <laughs> diagnosis. But I think that's when I, I definitely leaned into well-being and changing my lifestyle and managing my lifestyle and making that a daily choice because yes, I have great aspirations and ambitions, but do I want that to be at the detriment to my health and my family? For me, no. There's many women I speak to who've chosen not to actively chosen not to have children, who have actively chased their professional career. And that's been of huge importance and worth to them. But they still have the same level of exhaustion because it's not sustainable. Exactly. And I wish I could turn around and say, yes, of course, you can do it and you can be that person. But something inevitably has to give. And I do see it with ADHD women that it is often our emotional well-being or mental health. And now here's Melissa Orlov. And so that's a, a really important thing for couples to understand. It's about learning how to correctly interpret the ADHD. It's learning how to manage the ADHD so that you can be a dependable enough partner in that relationship as is, you know, as both people define it. But it's also about the non-ADHD partners, male or female, learning about what the symptoms mean, how they manifest, and how to respond. So in the situation I just gave, if you respond to your partner by chasing after them or being angry with them or whatever, you're going to have a certain kind of struggle. If you instead respond to them and say, gee, you seem particularly distracted this week and I'm feeling a little bit lonely as a result, let's go on a date. That's a very different interaction and a very different outcome. So some of this is having more nuance in terms of how both of you respond to it. And that includes things you mentioned, finding out about ADHD as an adult. It includes things like grieving together over the fact that you've just spent 15 or 20 years in a situation where you didn't know any better than to respond in those very kludgy, sort of very human nature ways and that you've lost a lot of time. Maybe you've, you know, most of your kids' childhoods where you were fighting or something when you could have had a much more harmonious relationship. Being able to grieve together about that is one part of the healing process. Yeah, that's so powerful, isn't it? To be able to do that together and for them to be able to acknowledge, you know, there's other big challenges that can have huge impacts on a relationship such as addiction and eating, um, disordered eating, um, you know, impulsive behavior, RSD, you know, rejection sensitivity dysphoria, I think for me is quite a big one because 
I can see something, I look, I can look into something and really kind of like, oh my goodness, like, why has he done that? Or why has he spoken to me like that? Or why has he reacted like that? And he's just like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And even with all the awareness that I have, and I work on this like every day, I now can spot the RSD. So it's sort of like more distanced, but it doesn't take away that pain I feel at that time when I think he's not treated me nicely or spoken to me nicely or or he's walked out the room while I'm still talking which is, he has a tendency to do and so it's interesting that I think awareness is so key and so helpful but we also have to give ourselves compassion that it, we still will have these tendencies and again you know addiction is, is something that I've seen in my family um that's ADHD related and I, I know the impact that can have on families and relationships and to live with that as someone that doesn't have ADHD, you know, is very hard. But I wonder, as people are listening to this, if they can give themselves that compassion and family members, because we see generational patterns emerging, don't we? I think when we get our ADHD diagnosis and all of a sudden we realise it's genetic and maybe we've seen a parent or a grandparent or a, you know, a sibling and all of a sudden we, we piece together all the things and I wonder now that more adults are getting diagnoses later on in life, if this is our opportunity to break these patterns, these cycles that we've seen over and over in our families. Is that something that you ever talk about or, or, or see in your practice? Yeah, I mean, it is hereditary. In fact, it's more hereditary than people realize. It's sort of along the same dimensions as hair color. So very hereditary, you know, when I, when I run into a couple, I say, okay, so whose parents, you know, and they, because the parents almost always had undiagnosed ADHD issues, they had the classic, uh, often had the classic struggles, or they had a very disorganized life, including often low levels of attachment because of the distractibility. And so there's not this role model of sort of what a healthy relationship looks like that, that the partner brings in, which doesn't mean the non-ADHD partner doesn't have similar issues. You don't have to have ADHD to have an alcoholic in the family or something else like that. But yeah, they, there are these generational things. You do have the opportunity to change the way things go. I would say one of the most important things, there are a couple of different patterns that are particularly important one of them is dealing with the dysregulation that you're talking about. So if you think of the ADHD brain as a reward-focused brain, in other words, the, the chemistry of that brain um, seeks satisfaction for things that feel rewarding. And that's one of the reasons why you have addiction issues and compulsive disorders and, and things like that. It's also extremely highly emotional. And as I went to a conference at one point, the keynote speaker was talking about how the ADHD brain is wired to create huge amounts of emotional content and has very weak brakes on that content. Uh, Ned Hallowell talks about it as a race car brain and, a, and bicycle brakes. It's very much like that. That can be extremely destabilizing for both partners. You bring up how painful it is for you to have these feelings when you're in those highly charged emotional moments. And you go to them, if you're like most other people with ADHD, very, very quickly and intensely. You feel those things, that pain intensely. And if you associate that with your partner, then things can go south pretty fast. You start to want to avoid your partner because as a reward-focused brain, you avoid things that don't feel good. And so that people can run into that. The other thing that I see a lot is a, a quick move to rage. So this is another part of rage or defensiveness. This is another part of that emotional dysregulation. And so the non-ADHD partner ends up sort of walking on eggshells all the time because they don't know what's going to set you off. And so they self-edit. Uh, they end up sort of saying, well, okay, if I talk about this, my partner's maybe going to get enraged, so I'm not going to talk about that. But then they don't end up getting out of the relationship what they want to get. Mm -hmm. And so the relationship, it all contributes to this struggle. So one of the things that it's really important for a person with ADHD to do is really work on the emotional management, the management of the anger, the quick ramp up, 
any kind of rage they might feel. Your partner doesn't deserve to be on the receiving end of that, even if you have trouble managing it. There are ways to do it. You can go work with a therapist, the cognitive behavioral therapy, or sometimes the the therapies that work with um, trauma can be very useful for that. Self-management through, say, mindfulness uh, work. Exercise is a great mood stabilizer. Um, you can set up verbal cues with your partner on um, if you start to look as if you're about to get enraged, like if you start to get really irritable or something and you're starting, your voice is changing tenor and you're getting really agitated, you can have a verbal cue in place, which allows the two of you to get separated from each other in terms of distance, physical distance, so that you don't say things that you regret or get any further revved up. There are lots of things you can do and it's a huge priority for couples to start to manage the emotional um, extremities of the relationship for both partners. Now let's hear from Marty Caldwell. So for example, my husband has ADHD. He finds my dog's bark absolutely like the worst thing ever, right? I don't like it, but it doesn't bug me that much and he doesn't bark that often. Um, But he barks when you come in the house. Um, and we've tried a couple different things. We can't get the dog to stop barking when we come in the house. Um, but one of the things that we do is that I go in first. Um, he barks while I'm in the house and, and my husband's, you know, getting stuff out of the car and he's gotten all his barks out by the time my husband gets in. Right. And so there's just kind of, you know, this is one of the things mm-hmm. that, that can get his levels up to kind of. I'm about to burst range. Um, And, you know, if God forbid he comes in, the dog is barking and and then the kids start fighting, you know, Um, it's the end. Um, And so if he can kind of separate from it. And so there are a variety of ways that you can do this, right? You can, if noises are something that's really big, you can wear um, earplugs and there are lots of earplugs that don't drown everything out, right? That just kind of make it a little bit more mild. Blue light glasses. There are so many different strategies for kind of dampening down this overstimulation, tagless shirts, all these things. If we can kind of lower that overstimulation, it can make it a lot more manageable. And of course, we can't take them all away. But if you can take the ones that you can away, then then that overall level is lower. And then the ones that you can't take away, if you actually turn towards them and see what they are, and rather than trying to kind of ignore them and turn away from them, then you're more able to actually affect some change rather than it just kind of constantly coming at you. Yeah. And I don't know what you were saying then, they're great tips. And I was thinking about, you know, myself, definitely when you've had a busy day at work and you've been racing and you, uh, and I spend my day racing, you know, like busy mum as, as many other women are wanting to tick all the jobs off and get your work done and know that you've got sort of like a finite time between, you know, when you have to go and get your kids, you come back from school and you have to kind of give them the focus that they want to make sure there's dinner, homework, all that. I find that if I don't have a buffer period between picking my kids up and finishing all my work, and very often I don't, so I will still be doing emails while I'm waiting for them to come out, or I haven't picked up the shopping and I have to get race from the, the, the kids to the shopping, that's where my emotional regulation goes, my, my, my mm-hmm. patience, my tolerance. So I have to constantly, it's like a daily check-in of my schedule of what can I do? Where can I put that buffer in? How can I ease some of that? I guess the, the overwhelm. So my kids don't bear the brunt of it because, you know, I love my mum, but I remember my mum, there was a lot of emotional dysregulation. I remember lots of shouting and lots of things that she would say that she, I can't cope with this. And I try so hard to not do that. I can't stop my kids from having a huge argument and throwing things at each other. Like that just, that will happen. And if you've got kids in the house, they're going to have tantrums. They're going to erupt. There's going to be arguments. But I try for myself to know how to react. So instead of kind of like reacting straight away, it's giving myself a bit of time to respond to 
how I'm going to deal with this situation. But if I haven't given myself that buffer or haven't allowed myself some time to have a cup of tea or go for a walk or maybe just just do like five minutes of breathing, I know I can probably exacerbate the situation. And then there's just like all hell in the house, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with with yourself or clients. And I'm sure that people are listening, you know, can this is a podcast for real talk. And I don't want to gloss over some of the stuff that we're all dealing with. So emotional dysregulation, it's not going to go away, is it? But we, with the knowledge of ADHD and the knowledge of how our brain works, exactly what you said about small things that we can you know muffle the external noises or sensations that can help us kind of move forward would you say it is a daily check-in it's intentional you know things that we do to help ourselves so and and then obviously modeling that to our children if we our children have got ADHD would you say that's probably the right way to start Yeah, definitely. And I love the buffer idea. I think that, you know, having that moment where you can shed the things that had overstimulated you before, before you go into the next things that are about to stimulate you. um, It's such a brilliant idea. And I think we, we all need to do that in between things, right? That so often that is the tendency of moms. We go one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing because we have 5 million things to do. And that ends up leaving us kind of breathless and things pile up. They're most likely to explode at home, right? Where, Where we don't have as many kind of social barriers to kind of keep things tamped down. Um, and, and of course, and, you know, and this is kind of what you're talking about in the beginning of kind of how emotions kind of derail us, right. That, that in those instances, like at home for a lot of us, that's our top priority, right? Like we want to be the best moms we could possibly be. Um, we want to be the best wives we can possibly be. And that's our value. And yet, because it's kind of the comfortable space because it doesn't have quite the pressures involved. That's where kind of the explosions happen. That's where, you know, we take from basically. And finally we have Grace Timothy. And then I think honestly, like I just learned to mask. There have been certain times where the demands have stacked up. So I had a really hardcore job in my early twenties and that really kind of was the undoing and unraveling of me for a while. Um, but I was also very responsive to those feelings of threat. So I eventually worked out how to go freelance, which was a game changer for me. So much happier. Um, when I had my daughter, we moved quite close to my family and that changed our whole kind of living environment for the better. I've sort of, without knowing what was going on, I knew that I needed a lot of time on my own. I knew that I was probably half extrovert, half introvert that needed a lot of recalibrating time. I have a really, really exceptionally patient partner who sort of has seen me through a lot of those moments and I think it's only now that I'm looking back and thinking it was those demands that were placed on me and I've luckily managed to edit life so that the demands aren't as kind of all-consuming now so you know I mean also I'm older I get like my where I am in my career is that I understand how things work I'm not constantly fueled by fear of fucking it all up kind of thing so I think I'm surviving better in that respect but I'm also very aware of how things change hormonally. So if I'm heading, I'm probably heading towards perimenopause fairly soon. And I'm aware that that can reshift things. I think, you know, when my daughter leaves home, that will be a big shift. I think, you know, when I sometimes look at taking taking on certain jobs and roles, I, I completely rethink it with this new awareness. So at the moment, I feel like I'm walking a fine line between being too cautious with the ADHD in the back of my mind and trying to kind of forge forward and be brave and do things that I probably wouldn't have done before. So it's a funny old time really, but I'm also incredibly lucky that it went this direction, that I was supported by so many different structures around me, like my family, even like work, schools, all of those things were very supportive. And I think being a white, you know, middle-class, I suppose, person from a certain amount of privilege meant that I was sort of protected from a lot of the outcomes that I think other people with ADHD have experienced. So yeah, happy days that I've got to this point and I, I still feel all right. Um, and I think 
the anxiety and all those other sort of comorbidities that I've had in the past, I've reached a point where those aren't an issue at the moment, but I'm very aware that they could be in the future. So I think, yeah, it's just all about awareness really and being careful. Yeah, listen, I resonate so much with so much of what you said then. And I had like huge amount of guilt for having those privileges. You know, that's only just accepted and beforehand I was just so I felt so guilty for having the privilege of having a supportive husband being able to pay for a private diagnosis like so many things that have led to an easier way of life for me that was on my mind all the time as well just you know having the guilt and I think as we get older you're right we do start knowing what's good for us and what's not good for us but sometimes we can be a little bit too cautious. I was talking about this with some clients the other day and it was about this like limited potential that we put that on ourselves. Like we know we've got all this potential, but then sometimes our limitations feel so strong that they override our potential. So we kind of know that we're very easily overwhelmed, that, you know, we um, can burn out really quickly. We get exhausted, that we always need to decompress and that aggravates us more because we want to achieve things we want to be productive and we ha- we're all, we're ambitious with you know our careers and we want to keep going and then we're always like it feels like we're always sort of hitting a bit of a you know a wall because we maybe preempt our well our wellness now we kind of know what's what's ahead we've been there we've done the burnout a few times so sometimes it can feel just exhausting in that place just being in that cycle of like well if I take that job and I do that thing is that going to exhaust me is that going to overwhelm me and sometimes we have to make that leap and do the thing that's going to light us up and fulfill us and do all the things that we want to do but maybe with just a slightly different awareness of yeah we can do the thing we want to do but you know instead of working full-time in an office can I do like one day at home two days at home can I make sure that I'm not working the whole day and I do like a, I don't know, you know, there's so many different things. And I think when we just reframe and we get a different perspective that it's okay to want to do all the things, but also recognize that our energy is hugely important. And, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of your career that that was kind of like the unraveling. So I think it's lots of different, lots of tinkering mm. and rebalancing all the time, different periods of our life, like you say, hormonally, different periods when our kids are different ages, our career, you know, we're having busy times, less busy time and not giving ourselves um, a hard time mm. for it, not sort of judging ourselves for the choices that we're making that feel right at the time. So that's today's episode done. Did what we talk about resonate with you? I really hope you found some takeaways that may inspire you to make some small changes that enhance your daily life. And if you did find this episode insightful, please do consider sharing it. Knowledge and awareness is power, especially with ADHD. You can also head over to the show's Instagram page, which is ADHD Women's Wellbeing Pod, and join the community that's waiting for you there. And if this episode really did strike a chord, please do consider leaving us a review to enable more people who need to hear these conversations find the show. Thanks so much for joining me today and see you next time.